Want to learn how to leverage your marketing to get clients on repeat? Charge a fee that leaves you with money in your pocket even after you've finished paying your bills? And finally, stop working with the clients that you've long outgrown? Liberated Business is a transformational program that combines group and one-on-one work so you get the best results possible. This differs from every other program out there because it helps you make money while supporting your joy and liberation throughout your entrepreneurial journey. Liberated Business starts this June and runs through November, and enrollment is open now. Visit thebadtherapist.coach liberatedbusiness to get all of the details and sign up. DM me on Instagram at thebadtherapist with any questions or to learn more. I cannot wait to get started with you. I was really trying to get around like, well, how do I make more money without like raising my fees, right? Which is so often like another question I hear therapists ask, how do I make more money without raising my fees? And I'm like, well, there's this thing called math and there's honestly not a way around that. Like, yes, you could see more clients, but oftentimes these people are like, but I'm already drowning in clients. I can't possibly see another client. And it's like, well, okay, then you need to charge more money or change your cancellation policy or both. Hey there, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show, the podcast for current and aspiring private practice therapists who want to earn more money, work less, and have a way bigger impact. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist, former goody-goody therapist turned six-figure private practice owner and therapist business coach. I'm here to help you learn everything you need to know about private practice and expanding beyond the one-to-one model so you can earn more money and increase your impact as a therapist without burning out or hustling. Using my proven liberated business method, therapists at all stages of business have been able to grow their income while becoming even better therapists. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. It's time for you to get your time back and enjoy being a therapist again. You ready? Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show. I'm your host, Felicia, the Bad Therapist. Today, we're talking about the biggest roadblock to therapists creating their dream practices, and that's the feeling of guilt. One of the questions I get from therapists all the time is, how do I uphold my cancellation policy without feeling guilty? Today, I'll share my story of how I went from being preoccupied with keeping everyone happy, whether they were asking for it or not, to learning how to take care of myself and build a thriving private practice without guilt. I'll share my tips for how you can begin to think differently about your own private practice policies, how to avoid common pitfalls when it comes to your cancellation policy, and tips to reduce feelings of guilt. Let's get started. If you've listened to episode one of the show, you've heard my story of becoming the bad therapist. You know that I wasn't always this way. In fact, I walked through life feeling incredibly guilty. I was numb to my desires, and so asking for what I wanted wasn't even an option a lot of the time. But a few really big mindset shifts and belief changes happen to allow me to begin to show up differently in my life, not just in my practice, but that was a huge place where things began to change. I'm going to spend some time in this episode on my personal story and, like I said, some of the shifts that I made. And as you're listening, know that some of these mindset shifts might feel really supportive for you and others just may not apply. So take what you like and let go of what's not for you. One of the first big shifts that happened is I got on board with my work as a therapist being my profession, my livelihood. 
I started taking it seriously as the thing that would not just maybe barely help me pay my bills, but the thing that would actually allow me to enjoy my life. I stopped seeing being a therapist as something that was just expected, a sort of given because I was good at it, but as a professional skill that I had developed and was incredibly valuable and worth paying for. I really took responsibility for the fact that I was providing a service to my clients. It wasn't a favor, it wasn't some sort of kindness out of the goodness of my heart, but it was a professional service that also happened to be incredibly intimate and genuinely caring. And when we as therapists forget this part, if we approach our work as if this is just something, well, of course I do it, I'm good at it, I love it, so why would I even really charge for it? That can be a really misleading attitude to bring to our work because at the end of the day, that's just not what's going on. We aren't doing this just out of the love of our heart. The service we're providing really does have a cost, not just to the client, but to our own lives. It takes our energy. It takes our time. It takes our commitment, education, continued training. This isn't just something we're doing as a hobby. This is our livelihood. And I think when we approach our work without that really clear in our own consciousness, we can set up some really strange dynamics in our work with clients. And again, it's ultimately pretty misleading. We're, we're not friends. And that can come up in relationships and therapeutic relationships in a way that can be really damaging for clients if we're not attending to it. This idea that therapists and people who are therapists should just do emotional labor all the time and it should just kind of be this free thing that we do uh, can come out in really subtle ways and it can also come out in really weird and obvious ways. So I'm thinking back to a time where I worked at this cafe in San Francisco for many years. And I had this boss who was under a lot of stress, uh, would sometimes, sometimes would often (laughs) lash out at me. And it was really, really rough. And for years, I didn't really say anything. And then I remember finally, at one point, I said, like, hey, please don't talk to me like that. This isn't okay. And her response was, well, aren't you learning how to be a therapist? Like, you should be able to deal with this. And I was like, oh, wow, that's... um, no, that's <laughs> that's not what this means. And again, that's sort of an extreme example of a scenario in which like the general public might expect a therapist to just kind of like deal with hardship and other people's psychological problems just because we happen to be good at it. But there's a long, long history of this work being devalued and not paid for as it has historically tended to be women's work, right? So that was a really important shift for me to come around to that like the labor I was providing, though, in the context of our society is expected to be unpaid. It's expected to be just be something you do, especially if you're good at it, which so many of us therapists are like, of course, we have years and years of training, we have thousands of hours of training. But many of us come into the profession already with a pretty strong skill set of being empathetic listeners, Um, really good at solving interpersonal problems. We tend to be really caring. And the world at large just tends to think, well, you're so good at this. This is obviously a natural human skill. So why would you charge for this, right? So we have a lot of good therapist conditioning and societal conditioning to kind of come up against and work through if we're going to really get on board with this concept of, no, this is a profession. This is something I do for work. This is my livelihood. This is not a charity. This is not a hobby. It's not just something I'm doing for fun. And as therapists, that can feel really weird because we feel oftentimes very, very attached to our work. We might feel 
very identified with our work and with our role as a therapist. And I think oftentimes we need to do some work around recognizing that you charging for your services or you really taking your work seriously as a profession doesn't take anything away from the skills that you have developed, from your natural proclivity towards empathy, toward your naturally caring and open heart. Just because you're charging for this or you're upholding your cancellation policy doesn't mean that that's not true. Uh, It doesn't put that in jeopardy. And I think that's really important for you to know as you're listening to this, that taking your profession seriously doesn't put your naturally caring, loving, open, kind heart in jeopardy. All right, I'm going to keep on moving on here. I'm going to share with you some experience, some more experiences that I, ha- I had with other people. They were less, uh, I would say, like less traumatic or offensive. Uh, but they were some slaps in the face after over the years, like some guides of mine in different positions shared some feedback with me that really helped me begin to change how I related to going after what I wanted, how I started changing my relationship with guilt. So you've heard me tell this first story before. This was when my supervisor told me that I was subsidizing my client's therapy by having multiple jobs, including one that I really didn't want to be doing anymore. And that was hard for me to hear uh, (laughs) because I was really trying to get around like, well, how do I make more money without like raising my fees, right? Which is so often like (laughs) another question I hear therapists ask how do I make more money without raising my fees? And I'm like, well, there's this thing called math. And there's honestly not a way around that. Like, yes, you could see more clients. But oftentimes, these people are like, but I'm already drowning in clients, I can't possibly see another client. And it's like, well, okay, then you need to charge more money or change your cancellation policy or both. But like, I was kind of in that position too, where I'm like, God, I sure wish I could make more money without doing this job I hate. And it's like, well, you could charge your clients more money. That way you didn't have to work this extra job. And again, that was a huge shift for me to have it put in such stark terms that the work I was doing that I truly had outgrown and wanted to stop doing, that I was doing that so that I could subsidize what other people were paying for therapy. And that was a wake-up call that I really, really needed. Another guy told me that I was really great at keeping the peace and taking everyone else's needs into account and really working hard to create harmony. I was really concerned with keeping everybody happy. If there was something I wanted, I tended to delay pursuing it um, or take detours because I wanted to make sure nobody was negatively impacted. And she was saying, you're you're really good at that. You've got the harmony thing down. You've got the peacekeeping mediation thing down. The thing you're not so good at is really identifying what you want and then just going for it. That's not a skill set you've really developed. And in order to grow, that's something you're going to need to learn how to do. I even remember her using the word selfish, which felt very radical for me because uh, that was the last thing that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be selfish. And this person actually gave me some permission to experiment with being selfish. And I took that to heart um, because I recognized that for many of us, we tend to be toward one end of the spectrum or the other. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, this may be something you totally relate to. You're hearing this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's totally me. I am always thinking of other people first. I have such a hard time even acknowledging if there's something that I want, if some part of me knows it's going to make things harder for somebody else. Oh my gosh, that's so me. I could maybe start to practice being a little selfish and see what happens. 
And before you think, oh my gosh, Felicia's dangerous, she's advocating for everyone to be selfish, I want to be really clear here that that is not everyone's medicine. When people have walked through their lives paying so much attention to other people, maybe even obsessively considering what's going on with everyone else around them, when they start to pay attention to themselves and put their needs first, even some of the time, that's going to read to them internally as being incredibly selfish just because it's so foreign. And so when I say selfish, I don't mean selfish in terms of like a some platonic form of selfishness. I mean a relative selfishness. I mean like if you are typically obsessing about everyone else in your life and you are finally making a move that is putting you at the forefront, you're probably going to think that you're being selfish and you're going to feel guilty. If I were sitting with somebody who had almost the exact opposite tendency, like maybe they weren't really considering other people in their lives. Maybe they were kind of going through life like a bull in a china shop and, you know, kind of leaving wreckage behind them. My advice would be different. My advice would be to actually slow down and pay attention to people outside of them. But I would say that for a lot of us therapists, we tend to be on the other end of that spectrum. We tend to be paying so much attention to everybody else, considering everybody else's needs, that oftentimes our medicine is to learn to be a little selfish. And again, I'm not talking about the platonic form of selfishness. I'm talking about a relative type of selfishness. A different guide told me essentially that I needed to get bigger goals. I had been working on financial health for a while really diligently. I had some goals that to me now seem quite small, but they were they were so huge at the time. I was trying to create an emergency fund for myself. I think I had the goal of maybe like $10,000, maybe it was even less than that. And I remember speaking to this guide and very happily telling him like, I've got $10,000 saved. And he was like, cool, Felicia, it's not that much money. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he's like, try saving, a, try amassing like $100,000. And my head just like might as well have exploded because that didn't feel like within the realm of possibility to me. And it wasn't really about the money. I think that's not the lesson I took away from it. It wasn't like you need $10,000 isn't a lot of money. $100,000 is a lot of money. That's not the point. The point was that my goals needed to expand. There were still parts of me that were playing really, really, really small. And it is true that at the time that I set the goal to create that emergency fund, that felt like a massive amount of money for me. Like that was crazy. But his point was like, okay, now it's time to update your goals. So my invitation to you is check your goals. Are your goals just minor improvements and adjustments? Or are you setting goals in such a way that it would lead to you having a practice that blows your mind? Like it is too good to be true. You can't even believe this gets to be your job. How did you get away with this? This is the type of goal that will actually really inspire you and help you keep on going. And it's important to update your goals periodically because like I said, there was a point in time where that $10,000 was exactly the right kind of goal for me. It actually did feel really inspiring. It felt pretty impossible. But as I achieved that goal, it was important for me to keep on expanding what was possible for me. Again, not because of the amount of money, but because of the amount of goodness I could have in my life. How willing was I to create goals that would lead me towards having a life that was beautiful, more beautiful than I could possibly imagine that Susan O'Malley quote I always love to use. And so that was his point was 
you need to update your goals so that you can expand towards the next iteration of yourself. Don't stop here. Like, don't settle. Don't settle for like just a minor improvement. Really go for it. See what's possible. Now that I've shared some of my story and some of the really big shifts that I made in order to change my relationship with guilt and actually really creating the practice I wanted to create, now I'm going to move into sharing some tips that you can put into practice in your private practice. So when people ask me, how do I do this thing in my practice without feeling guilt? My answer is typically you're going to have to feel guilt. Uh, at least for some period of time, because if between where you're at right now and the thing you want, you fear guilt, there will likely be guilt in between. But if you are willing to cross that threshold, if you're willing to experience the guilt and you learn that you survive whatever outcome occurs, the experience of guilt will get less extreme over time. And so will the fear of it. So guilt won't hold you back. Again, if you tend to be someone who people pleases or obsesses about how other people are going to feel about something or think about you, that was a huge one for me. I was very concerned with what other people thought about me. I didn't want to be disliked. I didn't want my motivations to be interpreted differently than what I thought they meant. Notice I didn't even say misinterpreted. It's like I have my own ideas of what I'm trying to do in my motivations, and I don't like it when other people have a different idea about what I'm doing. I just don't like it. I want to be understood. I don't want to feel blamed. But if I am going to create the life I want, there may in fact be instances where that occurs. And am I willing to deal with that? Am I willing to feel the sensation in myself when I believe others are upset with me or they disagree with me or they don't like the choices that I've made? Am I willing to deal with that? So one phrase that I learned that was so, so, so helpful and that I hope you'll put into practice in your own business is that if you ever have to choose between guilt and resentment, always choose guilt. Never put a person in a position where you will resent them, especially if they are your clients. I'm going to break that down a little bit because a lot of people hear that at first and they're like, huh, what? Those both sound like terrible options. (laughs) And like, oh, yeah, they're not great. Like it sucks if you're choosing between guilt and resentment. When you choose the option that leads to resentment, it means that you haven't done right by yourself. If you've done something that on some level you're not okay with, or you've not done something that you really wanted to do. And when you choose resentment, when you find yourself in a position where you've done something quote unquote for somebody else, again, whether or not they've actually asked you to do that, then you kind of create this dynamic that so easily leads to scorekeeping. And again, that's not great in the therapeutic relationship. So think about a time where maybe you had a cancellation policy and it, according to your cancellation policy, it was time to charge that client the late fee, but you didn't want to do it because you were afraid of how that might impact the client. You were afraid of feeling guilty. And so rather than doing that, you didn't enforce the cancellation policy, but let's say that was okay for a little while, but then, you know, months down the road, this person has canceled several times and Now you're starting to think back to that time (laughs) that you didn't charge them and you're feeling resentful. That can come out sideways in the relationship and it can be really harming. It can also be really insidious. It can be challenging to identify. Now, let's say you choose the opposite. Let's say uh, a client 
late cancels according to your policy and you charge them the fee. And maybe you've never done it before and you feel kind of guilty about it. It feels weird because you're sitting there thinking, well, even though this was my policy and I know that I made it for a reason, it still feels really hard for me. You're making this decision because it's something you decided to do. You're not doing it because of somebody else. No one else is to blame for your decision. No one else is responsible for it. You decided to do it for you. A key feature of resentment is feeling like we can't do the thing we want to do because of someone or something else. It's like, I would love to do this, but I can't because this person will be really upset with me or this client will probably leave or they'll think I'm being a bad therapist or my other colleagues will judge me. I would want to do this but I can't because of this other thing. And so that is a really important thing to look out for. And that'll be an indication that you're teetering on the edge of making a decision based in resentment. The main thing here is for you to own your decisions, for you to come to a place in your decision-making that you can get fully on board with it, that you can say, yes, I want this. Even if it feels scary, I am doing it because this is something I want. If you are still teetering on, I'm doing this because I'm afraid of how this other person will think about me, then we know that you're in the territory of resentment. And you have probably had scenarios throughout your time of being a therapist. Maybe it wasn't related to enforcing the cancellation policy or not, but you've probably worked with clients where you were showing up in a way that just really wasn't right for you, but you felt like you didn't have other options and that bred resentment. So I would like you to think back to that and and think about what that did to the relationship. Uh, I think it's really unfair for us to put people in a position of resenting them because honestly, they may not even realize that we're resenting them, that we're, you know, we have this kind of ickiness, this poison in the well. Uh, resentment can really poison a relationship. And they may not even know that we've made this decision kind of disavowing ourselves in order to spare them. That's not a fair position to put them in. I wouldn't want to be in a relationship where somebody was doing things to please me, but was all the time resenting me for their decisions. Like that would really, really suck. And I don't want to do that with my clients. So going back to your cancellation policy and being at this moment where you're trying to decide, okay, I have this cancellation policy, but am I actually going to put it in place or not? Many of us fear in that moment that if we were to actually follow through with our cancellation policy, that it would harm the relationship. So does it actually do this? Does it inherently harm the relationship? And I would say no. Your client may be frustrated. They may be confused despite the fact that you have, you know, maybe previously gone over the cancellation policy with them. They could be surprised that when push comes to shove, you actually enforce it. Um, This could highlight the fact that the relationship with you though intimate, is ultimately a professional one. That can be hard for clients sometimes when they're kind of in the relationship and they almost like forget that you're not their friend, you're in fact their therapist, and this is a professional context that you're working in. And they may have to grapple with the fact that this relationship has boundaries. And so in that way, having a policy and then actually following through with it can be very helpful in the therapeutic relationship even if it does cause some frustration. Not that we enforce it, you know, intentionally to cause frustration. That's not the goal. But even if it does, that can in fact be helpful clinically in some ways. Having a cancellation policy 
And then not enforcing it can actually, in some cases, cause more harm because now you're in a position where you are not really very trustworthy. You have outlined the rules of engagement for clients to be a part of your practice, but when it comes time to actually put those things in place, you're not doing it. And then if you're doing it inconsistently, that can be even trickier because now the client doesn't know what to expect. You have this policy, it says one thing, Sometimes you enforce it, other times you don't. What's going on? That can be very disorienting and it can chip away at the trust the client has for you. Even if they're telling you, oh, I'm so glad you're not enforcing the policy, thanks so much, how does that set you up for the next time when you do decide to enforce it? And if you're not true to your word, it begins to cast doubt on why this cancellation policy or any policy in your practice was created in the first place. So if you're worried about feeling guilty when you go to enforce your cancellation policy, I am here to tell you, you will probably feel guilty at first, and then you will learn that you will survive that guilt. And even if a client gets mad at you, you'll survive it. Even if a client leaves, a new client will come. Even if some of your therapist friends judge you, other therapist friends won't. You get to feel what it's like to take action that's aligned with what you want, and then you'll get data on what that's like, and you can always make adjustments as you go along. My next tip for how to have a cancellation policy with less guilt is to have a very clear cancellation policy and to enforce it consistently, like I've already been saying. Have an impeccably clear policy and as much as possible, remove yourself from the position of having to be a fact finder, an investigator, or a judge. So a lot of us have policies that say things like the cancellation fee is waived in the case of quote unquote emergencies. So raise your hand if you or your client have ever had different ideas about what qualifies as an emergency. This situation sucks. It sucks so much. It sucks for you. It sucks for your clients. And I would say it is worse than having a policy in which a client is charged a cancellation fee, regardless of circumstances. So anything that puts you in a position of being a judge or having to investigate or having lack of clarity has the potential to be really icky in the clinical relationship. The problem with a cancellation policy that requires you to act as a judge is that you're liable to quote unquote reward good clients with not enforcing the policy and to uh, also reward clients that you find intimidating uh, or you don't want to leave the therapy relationship by not enforcing the policy. So if there's any kind of wiggle room in your cancellation policy, if there's any sort of having to qualify what counts as an emergency or not. If you haven't actually spelled out those terms in the policy itself and you're having to make a game time call on that, whether you like it or not, you are a human and it's not always going to be easy to tell if you're making a neutral decision or not. So it's best to have a policy that really removes you from having to do that and clearly lays out your cancellation policy. So in my private practice, I allowed clients to cancel a certain number of times per calendar year for any reason without being charged a cancellation fee. But there was a limit to how many times they could do that. And when they needed to cancel, it didn't matter why they were canceling. They could cancel because they were going on vacation or because they got sick or because an emergency came up. The reason why didn't matter because I never wanted to have to have a list of reasons that were... Uh, allowable reasons to cancel and a whole other category of circumstances that weren't good reasons. Because 
I never wanted to get into the weeds with clients about that and try to pull apart, well, does this count or does this not count? No. So it didn't matter why they were canceling. They could cancel up to a certain number of times per year. And then after that, they were responsible for the fee. And so again, it didn't matter why they needed to cancel if it was, let's say, the fifth time in a year that they needed to cancel. It didn't matter why. They could do that because of vacation. They could do that because they were sick. It didn't matter to me. It wasn't a part of my policy, but they would be responsible for the fee. I really liked that policy because it was super clean and I never had to be in the position of being a judge. I never had to weigh out, well, is this an emergency or not? That just was totally removed from the policy. Another thing that was really important for me around getting aligned with my cancellation policy is to that my cancellation policy was in no way a reward or a punishment. It wasn't something I was doing to my clients. It was a policy I was creating in my practice and clients were made aware of it from the very beginning and could decide if they wanted to work with me knowing that that would be the arrangement of our work together. It wasn't some sort of punishment or a reward. I wasn't enforcing it inconsistently. It was very consistent. And so clients knew that this wasn't This was a pretty neutral thing. This wasn't some sort of reward if they were doing really well in therapy, whatever that means, or a punishment if they were not doing well in therapy. It had nothing to do with that. It was a very neutral policy and it bred a lot of trust. Now, there were some people who didn't like that policy and as a result, they chose not to work with me. Again, this wasn't a punishment or a reward. It wasn't up for debate. It wasn't up for negotiation. This was a policy that I came up with. That made sense for me and my practice, that encouraged people to come in regularly, and that helped stabilize my income. I ran the numbers, I did the math, I was thoughtful about it, and I created something that I knew I could get behind, and then I upheld it. This is so important for you to shift how you see your cancellation policy as being this thing that could somehow be wielded as a punishment or a reward, but to really see it as something that's very neutral. And it's more about encouraging consistency for clients. But even more than that, it's about stabilizing your own income. Because once again, going back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, that this is your profession, this is your livelihood, you have a responsibility to yourself to create a business that provides you with stable, reliable income. If it's not doing that, you can't show up in your work for your clients as effectively because you're going to be stressed out. You're going to be worrying about paying your bills. And that's going to come through not just in your work with clients, but in your whole life. You can go to my website, thebadtherapist.coach to see the cancellation policy that I just described, the one I used in my practice. It got me out of the judge role. It was super clear. It reduced no-shows and reschedules and it stabilized my income. This post and my blog includes a template which you can adapt for your own practice. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope sharing my story and tips have given you a window into what it can look like to change your relationship with guilt. If you want support in your private practice to start earning more money and feel more confident, make sure to check out the work with me section of my website. As of the airing of this episode, I have an opening for one one one-on-one coaching client. Space for one-on-one business coaching is extremely limited, so if you want support from me, a business coach who has been right where you are, please fill out the application, which is linked in the show notes. You can go to my website to see examples of what my clients have accomplished with private practice business coaching. Next week, we'll get back to our series on building your private practice team. See you then! 
That's all today for The Bad Therapist Show. Thanks so much for hanging with me. I hope you got some gems that you can start using right away in your own business so that you can break out of good therapist conditioning and build the business that you want. If you've gotten something out of this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with one of your good therapist friends who really needs to hear it. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and or review so that we can change not just our individual businesses, but transform the mental health system that got us here in the first place. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for more private practice and coaching tips. Remember, bad therapists make the best therapists.